I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. I'm sure that Jonathan and Christy considered a lot of possible names before they settled upon Anna Joy. And I'm sure they also considered some boy names just in case. In fact, they probably have a couple left on the shelf for future reference. One source I found said the most popular name for baby boys so far in 2002, apparently they get this from social security applications, most popular name this year is Joshua, followed by Jack, and then Lakeland. I just report the facts. <laughs> Do you know which men's names are used most often in the New Testament? besides the name Jesus? Number one is Paul. Number two is Peter. Number three is John. And number four is Abraham. Sixty-four times in the New Testament. You say, well, why does Abraham, an Old Testament character, get so much attention in the New Testament? Well, the answer is because he's such a great illustration of New Testament principles. He's a great example. And that's the way we find Paul using him in chapter 4. Now, Paul is a master teacher. He makes his point in chapter 3, and then he illustrates it in chapter 4. His point in chapter 3 is summarized in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of of the law. And having established that in chapter 3, we come to chapter 4 and he spends the entire chapter showing that Abraham is an example of salvation by faith. And the passage he really focuses on is back in Genesis chapter 15. And if you'd like to turn back there for just a moment, Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and Abraham says, I don't have any children, so I guess the guy who is my heir is this fellow Eliezer who was born in my house. And God responds to that in verse 4 and says, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body, he shall be your heir. And so God promises him a son. And then verse 5, and he took him outside and said, Look, behold the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So he promised him a son, and then he promised him a seed. And then in verse 7 it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. So if you want to preach on this passage, he promised him a son and a seed, and soil. And what did Abraham do? Verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God justified him. God declared him righteous. God put righteousness in his account because he simply believed. He had faith. And so he is a great illustration of justification by faith. And Paul is going to build that illustration in chapter 4. And he spells out the, the exclusiveness of faith in the first 16 verses. And then he's going to show us the nature of faith in verses 17 to 25. First of all, he establishes the exclusiveness of faith. And we began to see it last week. First of all, he says it's not by works in verses 1 to 8. 
In fact, he tells us in verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's exclusive faith. It's not by works. Secondly, it's not by ritual in verses 9 to 12. And what he tells us here essentially is that Abraham was justified in Genesis chapter 15. He was circumcised 14 years later in Genesis chapter 17. And so his point is, Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to get saved. In fact, the very opposite is really true. Jews have to become Gentiles. They have to follow the faith of a Gentile, which is what Abraham was when he was saved. They have to drop their reliance upon ritual. Paul even says in Galatians 5.2, If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. It's exclusively by faith. It's not by works. It's not by ritual. And then thirdly, he tells us, it's not by law in verses 13 to 15. Notice verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now notice something. The promise was not just for Abraham, but it was also for his descendants or literally for his seed. Now, who is Abraham's seed? Who is Abraham's offspring? Well, verse 11 tells us that he is the father of all who believe, Jew and Gentile. So, we are Abraham's seed. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought somewhere in the Bible it says that Christ is the seed. Well, you're a good Bible student. Let me show you that passage. Look at Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3. And notice what Paul says in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. The promise was not you'll have a whole lot of seeds, you'll have one seed, and that one seed is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But, slide down in Galatians chapter 3 to the last verse, verse 29. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. You say, well, how can Christ be the seed and we be the seed? Well, the answer is in verse 28 at the end where he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the seed. He fulfills that promise for Abraham. And when I believe in him, I, be, I come into Christ. And so Abraham's seed is Christ and everyone who is in him by faith. And so we are the seed of Abraham. And then back in Romans chapter 4, I want you to also notice in verse 13 that he condenses the promise to Abraham into a single phrase when he says that he would be heir of the world. Now that's larger than the promise that he made, the simple land promise that he made in Genesis chapter 15. How do you explain that he says Abraham is the heir of the world? Well, we might explain that by a reference to Genesis 12:3, where God said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That may be what he's referring to. Or he may be referring to what God said in Genesis 17:5, which happens to be quoted in Romans 4:17, where it says, 
a father of many nations have I made you. He may be referring to those quotes from the Old Testament, but it's more likely, I think, that he's referring to the fact that he tells us that Abraham is the father of all who believe. And since Abraham is the father of all who believe in Christ, what he's talking about as the inheritance is Christ's kingdom, which will be set up on this entire world. So Abraham and we, his seed, are heirs of the world. And Paul's point in verse 13, if you look, is that this promise made to Abraham was not through the law. Now, that should be obvious to anybody who studies Old Testament history because Abraham lived four centuries before Moses. Abraham received this promise from God over 400 years before Moses received the law. So to say that Abraham was not affected by the law, that, that the promise didn't come through law, the law would be like saying that George Washington wasn't influenced by Reaganomics. You see, when Abraham was justified before God, he had no law, and he had no ritual. He had nothing but faith. And so Paul's point is the promise was not realized through the law. It couldn't be. It was realized through faith. And then he goes on to give a hypothetical situation in verse 14. He says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If the law made you heirs, if the law made you sons, if the law made you children of Abraham, then faith would be void and the promise would be nullified. And why is that? Because none of us can keep the conditions of the law. You see, God didn't make the promise to Abraham and then over 400 years later say, you know, I think I'll add some conditions. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. No. You see, God's promise was unconditional. In fact, if you'll take the time this afternoon to read the rest of Genesis chapter 15, you know where Abraham was when the covenant with God was ratified? He was sound asleep. And that day, the way they ratified a covenant, the way they confirmed a covenant, was that they took animals and they cut them in half right down their spine. And they put one animal on one side, one half on one side and one on the other, and they made a row of split animals. And the, both parties confirming a covenant would walk between those bloodied animals along the blood that had been separated and they would pronounce their obligations to each other. It was like sealing it in blood. But if you read Genesis chapter 15, you'll find that God walked between the animals alone because this was a one-sided covenant, and it had to be because faith and law are mutually exclusive. They don't mix they cannot coexist as conditions for righteousness. Whenever law enters, faith exits. And then in verse 15, Paul goes on to show that the law was never designed to make us heirs. The law was never designed as a condition of God's promise. Notice verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. The law doesn't activate God's grace. It activates God's wrath. The law does not bring life. It brings death. 
In fact, look over again with me at Galatians chapter 3, where we were earlier. Galatians chapter 3, and this time I want you to notice verse 9. Galatians 3, 9. Paul says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Faith brings blessing. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under curse. Faith brings blessing. The law brings a curse. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Let me show you one other passage back in Deuteronomy where Paul quotes from. Deuteronomy 28. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 27. Let me show you a passage in Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. It says, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. If you don't keep every word of this law, verse 59, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses, and He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which not written in the book of this law the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. If you don't keep every word of the law, you're going to be destroyed. And Paul says, the law brings wrath. And then he follows that in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15 by saying, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Where there is no law, neither is there violation. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me illustrate this way. A hundred years ago, you could go across the state of Missouri a hundred miles an hour, and there would be no violation because there was no law against traveling across the state of Missouri a hundred miles an hour. Now, it would be very difficult because there weren't any cars that would go that fast, and it would be very stupid because there were no paved roads, but it would not be a violation a hundred years ago to go a hundred miles an hour across the state of Missouri because there was no law. Today, there's a law. So today, if you go across the state of Missouri a hundred miles an hour, you will find that that law brings wrath. You see, you have that same principle at work in your home. When your kids get out of hand, what do you do? You lay down the law. And what happens next? wrath. You ever said to your kids, didn't I tell you not to do that? Now, I learned a long time ago, that was the most stupidest question I could ever ask. Didn't I tell you not to do that? And what do they say? No, you didn't. And so at that point, you have to say, well, now I'm telling you. Now you know. Now you're accountable. Now if you do it, there will be consequences. You see, the law doesn't bring blessing. The law brings wrath. And especially when we're talking about God's law because there's no way that we can keep it. And then Paul summarizes in verse 16. 
He says, for this reason, it is by faith. Salvation is by faith. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, not by ritual, not by law. It was by faith and by faith alone. And why was that? For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. Grace doesn't operate on the condition of works. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves and do not deserve. Grace is God's free gift. Grace finds its motive in God, not in us. If we do one iota to gain God's favor, then it wouldn't be grace. And you see, the exclusiveness of faith, the fact that it is faith alone, proclaims the glory of God's grace. You know what else? Since salvation is by grace, God's promise is sure. Look at the rest of verse 16. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the seed. If the inheritance was in any way dependent upon me, then I would never be certain that I had it. I would never be sure. I would always be wondering if I had done enough. You would say to me, Dan, or you'd say it, and I'd say, well, I hope so. I, I, I think I am. I'm close. You see, the law is the womb of doubt. If we had to be saved by a system of works, we'd never have assurance of salvation. We'd never have security. We would live our lives in anxiety. But because of the grace of God, faith does not turn its attention to what I do or what I'm able to do. Faith has only one object for its gaze, and that's God's promise to do everything for me. That's God's promise to take sin out of my account and put Christ's righteousness in it. My faith has only one gaze, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ, where he said, it is finished. And because of that, I can relax. Because of that, my salvation is sure. You say, well, who has this assurance? Who has this certainty of salvation? Well, notice what he says in the rest of verse 16. In order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, the father of many nations, have I made you. And that's a quote from Genesis 17, 5. The condition for being Abraham's seed is not nationality. It's not that you happen to be among the people to whom the law was given. The Bible says it will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that are included in that seed. He is the father of many nations. You see, Abraham is the father of all of us who have Abraham's faith. And that's the only condition. And Paul has shown us the exclusiveness of that faith in verses 1 to 16. It's apart from works. It's apart from ritual. It's apart from law. And then the second half of this passage, he shows us the nature of faith in verses 17 to 25. Or this is how to believe God for a miracle. 
In verses 17 to 22, we see Abraham's faith illustrated. And then in verses 23 to 25, we see Abraham's faith applied. First of all, Abraham's faith is illustrated in verses 17 to 22. This is how Abraham believed God for a miracle. And I want us to notice four things about the nature of his faith. First of all, the object of his faith in verse 17. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. The object of his faith was God. You see, Abraham didn't just believe in a principle. He believed in a person. He didn't have faith in himself. He had faith in God. And true faith is always in God. But I want you to notice something. He didn't simply believe in the existence of God. He didn't simply believe that God loved him. He didn't simply believe that God was holy. He believed some very specific things about God. And Paul mentions two of them here. Two particulars that Abraham believed about God. Number one, in the middle of verse 17, he says, God who gives life to the dead. He believed in a God who could resurrect the dead. And that was important to Abraham because Abraham had to believe that God could bring life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And later he would have to believe that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He believed in a God who could give life to the dead. You know, sometimes people ask me, do you really believe that Jonah got swallowed by the great fish? And I said, yes, I do. But you know, I don't believe that you would have to believe that Jonah got swallowed by a great fish to be saved. But to be saved, you do have to believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So my point would be, if God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, then he can make a fish swallow Jonah. You see, we believe in a God who is able to raise the dead. That was the first condition. Abraham didn't just believe in a, in a, in a God that he made up. He believed in a God who had the power to raise the dead. Secondly, at the end of verse 17, he believed in a God who calls into being that which does not exist. You say, well, I know some people who call into being things that do not exist, and we call them liars. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying he believed in a God who could create out of nothing. He believed in a God who could speak things into existence. And that was also important to Abraham because God spoke of a land that he was going to possess when that land was possessed by Canaanites and Perizzites and Jebusites. God spoke of a son when there seemingly was no possibility for a son. God spoke of a seed like the stars in number when Abraham had zero. Abraham had to believe in a God who could call things into being that didn't exist. You see, these are the two characteristics that bring about the two kinds of miracles that only God can perform. And those miracles are create out of nothing and give life to the dead. The object of Abraham's faith was an omnipotent God. Secondly, not only the object of his faith, I want you to see the opposition of his faith. Verse 18, in hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. God took Abraham outside and said, count the stars. 
so shall your seed be. And Abraham believed God in hope against hope. I love that phrase. He believed in hope against hope. You see, he had some opposition. In fact, this situation was so hopeless that when Sarah overheard the promise, you remember what she did? She laughed. Now, we know she didn't believe because a 90-year-old woman who believed she was going to have a baby would cry. In fact, this was so unbelievably funny that God said, when you do have the son, I want you to name him Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Laughter. God gave a promise that was unbelievably funny, and everybody laughed about it. And God even made his name Laughter. God's promise went against reason. God's promise from a human standpoint was irrational. It went against Abraham's senses. And then notice verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now the circumstances said, there's no hope. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. He was as good as dead. Her womb was a tomb. He was impotent. She was barren. So he looks at his body, and things do not look good. He looked at the circumstances. Things did not look good. Now, this verse tells me that despite what people teach today, faith is not pretending that things are different than they are. Faith is not saying that there are no problems when there are problems. Faith is not living in a fantasy world. You see, doubt came along, the opposition came along and whispered to Abraham and said, look at your body, dude, you're dead. And Abraham looked at his body and said, yeah, you're right, I'm dead. Humanly speaking, there's no hope. But, verse 20, yet... With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Abraham looked at his body and said, yeah, you're right, I'm dead, but I'm not going to look at the circumstances. I'm going to look at God and his promise. You see, true faith is best exercised when all the odds are against me. Noah didn't pay attention to the fact that it had never rained. Instead, he obeyed God and built the equivalent of an 18,000-ton ship. Gideon didn't pay attention to the fact that his army was outnumbered 450 to 1. He looked beyond the circumstances to God. Joshua and Caleb didn't pay attention to the giants. They didn't pay attention to the fact that their army was made up of a, a band of recently released captives. I mean, he looked around at their skill level, and their biggest skill le level was bricklaying. But he didn't pay attention to that. Joshua and Caleb didn't pay attention to that. Instead, they say, let's go up and take the land. Now, that was totally irrational. And that's when true faith is exercised. Abraham looked within himself, and he saw death. He looked around himself and he saw death, but he looked to a God who brings life out of death. 
And then thirdly, I want you to see the optimism of his faith. Notice the end of verse 20. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham praised and thanked God before there was any evidence of a son. When God gave the promise, he started praising God for the answer before it was ever realized. That's the optimism of faith. And then the second thing I want you to see about the optimism of faith is in verse 21. It says, "...and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. I wish you'd underline that verse. Whatever God promises, God is able to perform. That's the key. You see, he stopped looking at his circumstances and he started looking at God and the fact that God is able to do whatever he promises. That's the optimism of faith. And then fourth, I want you to see the outcome of his faith. Verse 22, Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified. Abraham was declared righteous. God put righteousness into his account. Why? Not because of works, not because of ritual, not because of law, but because he believed God would do what he said he would do. That's the illustration of Abraham's faith. And then the second half of this last passage I want you to see is Abraham's faith applied in verses 23 to 25. First of all, we saw how Abraham believed God for a miracle. This is how you and I believe God for a miracle. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned. You see, Abraham wasn't just an isolated case. You can have the same kind of miracle if you have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. What's the object of our faith? Look at verse 24 again. But, not for, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The object of our faith is him, God. What kind of God? Who gives life to the dead. Proven by the fact that he raise Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of God we believe in. We also believe in a God who calls into being that which does not exist. How does God do that in my life? God calls me a sinner righteous. He calls me unrighteous, one who is right, has the righteousness of Christ. He calls into being that which doesn't exist in my case. I believe in a God who raises the dead. He raised Jesus. I believe in a God who declares me righteous. And it's true. Even though in reality I don't see it. And then the opposition of our faith, it's not really here, but I'm going to squeeze it in. Doubt comes along. And what does doubt say to you? You're not righteous. You're a sinner. You're not worthy. How could you say that you're going to enter into a perfect heaven and stand before a perfect God? And what do I have to say? Yeah, you're right. I look at the circumstances and I am not worthy. I look at the circumstances and I continue to sin in my life. It's a reality. But that brings me to the optimism of our faith. Verse 25. He was delivered up because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. You see, I look at myself and I say, you're right, I'm not worthy. But Jesus Christ died to pay for my sin. 
And when God raised him from the dead, that was God's way of saying, about me and you, I am satisfied. That's the optimism of my faith. I keep looking back to the cross and saying, Jesus did it all. And when Jesus died, he said, it's finished. And it's over with. You're right, I'm not worthy. I have opposition to my faith. It doesn't look very good for me from a practical standpoint. But in reality, I have the optimism of my faith in Christ. And then finally, we see the outcome. What is it? Last phrase in verse 25. Because of our justification. Underline that word, our. Just like Abraham, I am declared righteous. Not by works, not by ritual, not by the law, but by faith through grace. Now, I would have to say to you this morning that there is no greater miracle than that. There is no greater miracle than God declaring me a sinner to be righteous in his eyes. There is no greater miracle than God taking someone like me and preparing me to be able to live with him eternally in heaven in perfection. There's no greater miracle than that. It has happened in the lives of many in this room. My question this morning to you is, have you experienced that miracle? The same God is still doing the same thing he did for Abraham. He's still putting righteousness into the accounts of people who not only don't have righteousness, they don't even have an account. The same God is still doing that same miracle in the lives of people who have the same faith. And so my challenge to you this morning as we close, I'm going to have the praise team come back and lead us in that song, The Power of Your Love. And it really talks about the power that God has to change our lives. I'm going to ask us to stand as we sing it in closing this morning. And I don't know how God may have spoken to your heart, but I would love nothing more this morning than to get the opportunity to sit down with you and show you how God wants to work that same miracle in your life this morning. You come as we sing together. Let's pray. Father, I continue to be amazed by your grace. It's so exciting to look in a passage like we had this morning and realize that there's nothing we could do to change our desperate circumstances. But when we take our eyes off those circumstances and look to you, we find a God who is not only able, but willing, and not only willing, but already expressed that willingness by sending your Son. Father, you've done it all. And it's all by your grace that we can never comprehend. We rejoice in that this morning. Father, I pray if there are any today who have never come by simple faith to the foot of the cross, that today you might draw them into your grace and they might experience the joy of being delivered by the sacrifice of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name.